This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Back after a fairly long hiatus are your hosts, me, Ken Moorfield, and Todd Troffin. That's me. We'd like to welcome any of our new listeners who are linking to us from One More Film Blog, now on Patheos. We're glad that you could join us, and we invite you, if you like the podcast, to hop on over to filmgeekradio.com and check out our our archive. This is episode 46 for June 2014, and our topic is The Edge of Tomorrow, directed by Doug Lyman and starring Tom Cruise. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen The Edge of Tomorrow and don't wish to know plot spoilers, this may be a great time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Todd, in choosing The Edge of Tomorrow for our discussion, we found out that we both had some concerns about the way the film represented violence. One of my pet peeves as a Christian film critic is that I sometimes think Christian viewers are a little more sensitive to or dialed into representations of sex and sexuality and nudity in film, but they let lots of violence go by without really examining it or putting it under the lens. So we wanted to do that and specifically talk a little bit about both the violence in a narrative context and uh, a little bit about the formal elements and the ways that the violence is presented in this film that we found disturbing. Let me ask you to take the first one and say what exactly is meant by narrative violence or the contextual violence. Uh, what was it about the way the narrative was constructed that raised some concerns for you? Or Yeah, and when we were walking out of the theater and talking about the film, Certainly the audience that we were with enjoyed the film. Yeah, it's um, about 80% at Rotten Tomatoes. So. Right. It, it's been getting a lot of positive buzz. But there was something that the film just felt a bit empty to me. And as I thought about it, it had a lot to do with the narrative structure of the film. And namely the main device of the film. It wasn't just... A side thing, the, the very core of the Edge of Tomorrow story is this idea that Tom Cruise's character, every time he dies, he recesses to a certain spot. And so he can just do things over and over and over again until he gets it right. And doing, getting it right, of course, it requires him to turn into a super soldier and kill the bad invading aliens. But as things were going on, part of the problem here was that sort of Groundhog Day resetting, going back and back and back, is it totally removed any realism? There's no consequences for his actions or anyone's actions. Um, Even the ancillary characters, if they did something or they died or they were crushed or they did something good, it meant nothing because he was going to get to a place where he messed up as in a video game, and he was just going to restart. And so all of the choices that were made up to that point were totally erased. All right, let me just 
tease out or get you to clarify, you would use the term realism. This is science fiction or fantasy. So exactly. if you're going to have a time travel loop, right. you like other films that were not realistic in that genre, like Looper. Right. Uh, so there's something beyond just it not being realistic or not being in the genre. Well, and, Could you tease that out? Yeah, and I think, you know, in sci-fi and fantasy, in order for the fantastical things to be accepted, you can't have too many of them. You have to follow the rules of whatever world you've set up. And usually, I mean, there's some old adage, I'm now forgetting who the famous critic was, is that basically you get to change one or two things. It, it was Ursula again, oh, and Ursula I actually again. mentioned that in my review of Christianity Today. He said you get one. You get one. And, you know, this film doesn't, you know, there's more than one. And, and, I think, and even that one, the you know, as long as you don't get your blood transfused, you always reset to a certain place, especially toward the end of the film, they break that rule. And he doesn't reset to that place when he gets his blood transfusion. All of a sudden now, he's still going, or it's not, I mean, it's not clear. Right. Um, in fact, both of us walked out of the, the film not really knowing what happened um, at the very end, uh, or how it made sense. Or how it happened. Yeah, how it happened. And so you've got a film here that's playing loose with its own rules. And I guess that, that sense of realism, maybe realism isn't really the right word, but dramatically speaking, there needs to be cause and effect. A, a character makes a choice, something happens. And the, the structure of this film essentially erases those, that cause and effect loop. Yes, I, I think maybe realism is a, a complicated word, right. uh, but I think maybe what you're driving at is less Ursula Legin's formula than Aristotle's of having the whole Aristotelian unities of unity of time, sure. unity of place, and unity of character. And I think part of what seems unrealistic about this film to me, as opposed to other sci-fi films that postulate technological advancements or things that can't happen in the physical world, is the lack of unity of character, the sense that there isn't uh, the same, these aren't the same people, or that you don't have cause and effect in, in the universe. It's like, I, I'm willing to give you the time travel loop if, within the context of a time travel loop, people act as normal human beings caught in a time travel loop possibly would or could, and I'm not sure that any of them would act in the way that these people do. Yeah, and we get I mean, we get a little bit of that with the female character Emily Blunt's super soldier character, who she herself the the way that she was able to become this fantastic soldier she herself was caught in a loop until she got out of it. Um, so she kind of knows what's happening. There is one other character who knows, and everybody else, yeah, well, no one else matters in this film, partly because they're constantly being killed in various ways. The Tom Cruise character, there's, there's a, I, mean, I don't want to say the film totally fails with him in what you're saying. He certainly figures out, okay, if I go through these things, these things enough, I, I can acquire skills and learn. And he knows that, and he, he does do that. And I think most of, you know, most of us would try, would figure that out and do that. Not that different than Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, who learns how to play the piano and learns I also mentioned Groundhog Day in my review 
Christianity Today, and one of the things that I thought is that in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray had to learn something other than skill. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just resetting and taking the right pattern through the video game. He had to learn an idea. He had to learn to live for other people or to do the right thing. The right thing meaning something other than just the right sequence of buttons to push or steps to take. And one of the ways in which Edge of Tomorrow felt very flat to me is they put so much emphasis on the training and the development of Tom Cruise's skill that any sort of development of him as a character of what he learned got short shrift. Supposedly at the end, he's, at the beginning, he's a coward. And at the end, he has acquired a kind of bravery, not just from being invincible, but from experience. But by the same token, I've been around a lot of veterans or soldiers who have been in combat. And even though Tom Cruise has only experienced one day, he's experienced that one day a thousand times. Well, that's a thousand days of combat. And I would think that that would emotionally affect you. That would, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that would spiritually affect you. But rather than there being an accumulation of the weight of I've been in, you know, I've been fighting this war for three years. I'm, I'm tired. I've seen a lot of things. He just becomes more flip, more oblivious, more gung-ho, uh, and less concerned about you. Well, and we never really see him develop from the coward to the guy who says, oh, I'm going to learn to fight. It, just, it happens in an instant. Emotionally, right. Yeah. yeah. Him, his character changes in an instant. As though learning this thing, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I knew I was going to reset, that wasn't going to change the fact that I don't like it. Right. And, you know, that would take a long time for me to not like, you know, not worry about, oh, fine, I'm going to die now and learn, start over. The, the moral and emotional development gets implied through new actions that he makes in each iteration. But it's never actually shown to us. It's 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 delegated to the montage scenes right. where you know we're told he went through this a couple thousand times. He learned a couple things, and let's get on to right. the rest. Yeah. So for me, the what made the film feel flat to me was really this really a, a plot problem um, in terms of you know, the character and the removal of consequence, um, so that the by the end of it, when he does lose his immortality, so to speak, I really don't care. At least for me, the, the individual moviegoer, I didn't really care anymore. Uh, well, and neither does the film. And the film doesn't seem to care. Because after he loses his immortality, that's supposed to be the thing that makes his last assault courageous. But we find out that he either didn't really lose it or that in being successful in the last one, rather than sacrificing himself, it somehow irrationally throws him back even farther into the past and says he doesn't have to go through it at all. Yeah. Uh, and so exposing yourself to violence or questionable content, it, it's, like, it's like getting your x-rays at the dentist. That little bit is probably not going to kill you or give you cancer, but you still put on the lead vest and you still don't subject yourself to it for no reason. And if I'm going to get that amount of violence in a movie, I want it 
to be meaningful. I want it to cause me to think or be in a narrative context where I could say, okay, there's some reason that I thought about that and there's some truth that was revealed through that rather than here's an, here's an adrenaline fix that is in the form of visual images. And this might be a good time to shift our focus slightly. We've been talking about the, the narrative and structure and you were more concerned, I think, with the kind of the formal uh, presentation of the violence and how it impacted the audience. Yeah. One scene that particularly bothered me that I singled out in my review was early on after they've landed on the beach and are storming the beach, uh, Tom Cruise's character sees another gung-ho soldier who is killed by a ship falling out of the sky and landing on him. The film makes a big point out of making that a reference point for each iteration as he gradually learns to push that guy out of the way so that he doesn't die. Right. And at first he does so very clumsily, doesn't get all out of the way, and he gets killed, and so it gets reset. Uh, and then he learns to get at him quicker until finally it becomes almost this sort of road automatic. Yeah, land, kick that guy out of the way. In one of the last iterations, uh, Cruz's character lands. He's clearly tired of having gone through this a couple thousand times. He kind of looks in the guy's direction, and rather than push him out of the way, he just says, oh, well, and the plane lands on him. Uh, and one of the things that disturbed me about that was as the ship lands on Extra, the audience that I saw the film with howled with glee. Now, I have had some people push back in my response and say, that's a problem with the audience. That's not necessarily a problem with the right. filmmaker. But the more I thought about formally the way the film was shot, the more I thought, I, I really do think that they were inviting us in the shot selection and in the editing to laugh, to play the violence for laughs. And I think that desensitizes us more. It wasn't just a matter of that man's, that that outcome was different. But Tom Cruise's expression mm-hmm. as he looks at it and just says, oh, I'm tired. I'm not well, going to do this. He's tired and he has made a determination after all these iterations mm-hmm. that that person is not important. He doesn't need that guy to solve the problem. Or at the very best, he can't save that guy. None of the patterns that go in there right. uh, allow him to save that guy. But if that was the case, you would think he would articulate that or he would be somber or sad at that rather than just sort of like the, almost the expression or the shrug that he gets it, it is almost, I don't think he verbalizes it, but it's, oh, bleep it. I, I, I'm going to try something else. Other examples of what I mean in terms of shot selection that I think invites that, there's a training montage, as there always is, are in these films, in which Emily Blunt is training Tom Cruise, and the joke is while they're being chased by these robots or mechanical things, uh, each time Tom Cruise makes a mistake, or as they get to the end of a training day where he's improved but not yet good enough to take on the real monsters, she says, okay, it's time to reset, and shoots him in the head. At one point, early on in the training mission, he, uh, he gets knocked down, and she wants to reset, and he doesn't. And he starts crawling away from her comically, like, no, no, don't shoot me. She's like, ah, oh, sorry, and pulls it out. And we get a, we don't get at that point a shot of Cruz's character. 
we're not invited to take the point of view or associate with the point of view of the person who's being shot because to do so would realize that even though you know you're going to wake up in another life, which is a Christian parallel, that doesn't cease to make the death traumatic and the fear real. Instead, at that point, we get a very tight shot on Emily Blunt, and she delivers it with a kind of bravado, one-off line uh, that's supposed to make her look cool. And the point of view or the association that we're invited to identify with visually is, oh, wouldn't it be cool to just be able to shoot people for real, like in a video game, so that you could become super talented and whatever it is that you wanted to do, and that we didn't have to worry about our physical limitations or something like that. But the only way that that could be cool is if they don't show us the actual consequences of that, right. you know, of that violence, even if it's just for a moment. I and in all of the resets, yeah, you, you, you know, early on, you see a little bit of him being a little frightened. You know, monsters coming at him, and it's kind of scary. But for the rest of the film, you're absolutely right. It we never really see him get killed, and it really takes away from the you know what would be the real experience. Yeah, and it turns it in as you said a video game that we're all you know, and that's the other thing that I found a little flat too is it's like all I was doing was watching a young person play a video game, and I'm sitting there on the couch watching. This would be a very different film if it were two minutes longer and the cut each time he was killed was five seconds later so that you actually saw him being killed rather than cutting the moment before he is killed right. and then he wakes up. Uh, another example of being played for laughs is in one of his learning montages. He has to get away from his platoon in order to find Emily Blunt. Uh, so he's out marching with the other soldiers uh, and he picks a fight with the drill sergeant who makes him stop and do 50 push-ups. And as they're doing push-ups, a roll of jeeps walks by, and he has to learn to time it so that he can roll underneath the jeep right? Uh, so that he gets away before the guy can see him. And the first time he does this, we just see him roll, and all we hear is the stomp, where it's obvious that the jeep has run over him, and uh, he wakes back up, and then we rush back to the thing, and he tries to roll over again, and this time he makes it. And again, when that thunk happens, we don't see it. We don't see the messiness of thinking of another uh, place where I recently saw someone's head crushed uh, to death in a recent episode of Game of Thrones that was shown in very horrific, disturbing detail. And because we don't see it, because we just hear the sound effect, you know, and wake up, the audience laughs again because I think what what suddenly we're being told or fed is this notion of violence has no consequence. I mean, we know realistically it does, but within the context of this movie, not only does it get divorced from context, which is what you were talking about, it gets divorced from any real suffering. Right. Because the suffering is the part of it that's always alive. But Ken, this is a science fiction movie. This is a summer blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Why does this matter? I, I mean, I, I think it does to loop, our, to loop ourselves back to the beginning about why Christians are upset or what they're upset about or what they should be upset about. I do think that 
just seeing one bit of violence isn't going to necessarily change the way you think. Uh, but the rep, the sheer repetition of certain ideas, I do think can numb us to not wanting to see other people suffering or to turning away from other people's sufferings. Uh, I made a comment to you during pre-show notes that I thought once or twice watching this movie of some of the reports of witnessing 9-11 that were in the Norton Anthology of Literature. I think one of them was written by John Updike. And John Updike talking about, quote, false reality of television, of the cognitive dissonance that people felt watching a real-life horrific incident because their brain had been trained to say, when I see violent images, it's inconsequential. It's not real. Right. And yet I have to keep reminding myself when I see that TV, no, this is real. Those are actual people that are actually dying. Or even then, I think, up back sort of saying, when I see it on happening in real life, even if I know it's real, my sensitivities are blunted. Not just my sensitivities to violence, but to other people, to, right. to human people, uh, because I have trained myself to look away. I've trained myself to, to cut, to cut, right. And I'm like, where's the cut? You know, where's the cut? Because, and, and, and you know, it, that I think is the line edge of tomorrow. That's not the science fiction conceit or the time travel conceit. It's that you can go through your life, that, that there's always a cut, that you don't have to witness anything uncomfortable or untoward or that, you know, you can fix things. And then all of a sudden you go out into the real world and you end up being mad when people don't cut, you know, when they do, when people like Game of Thrones do show you something and say, you know what, this is horrific and you're supposed to be horrified by it. I don't want to be horrified, you know. I want to be able to just be entertained by it. And so I'm not a big believer in, oh, we should never show violence. But I am bothered by showing violence in such a way that suggests to us that we should ever look at it or think of it as something that is divorced from consequence or divorced from suffering. Because I think that has echoes or ripples that reverberate back to how we think about suffering or consequence in the actual real world. And I would add, you know, we started this with the kind of the idea that one of the things that we notice in the Christian world is that violence and sexuality are treated very differently. Yeah. And I think one of the things, what you're saying about the violence is, is essentially what many people would say about sexuality. If you see, you know, nudity, if you see all these simulated images on the screen, that's going to affect you morally. Put those images in your head. The image is real. The image You is may real. understand that the person is not actually doing it, but that image is in your head. And the thought in the thought that you, you think of when you process it is real. And and it is one of the things I don't understand, is why, if, if those arguments are true about sexuality, why do we not treat violence the same way? Why is violence not given the kind of serious attention um, that we give to sexuality? I was trying to think of a different film. You had mentioned Looper. Before and I think that is a film that does a little a better job. I'm not might say it's a perfect thing, but it's a better job of showing us the consequences of the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the old character, the, the Bruce Willis character, has been scarred. 
uh, emotionally, psychologically, by the life of violence that he had led. Um, and when he's coming back to change things, that's part of it. And so we, there are consequences in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, even and there are effects. And there are, there effects. are effects of that there are consequences to the violence, and exercising violence affects you. It affected him. It did. And even though it's it, it's still that time looping conceit, they were able to really explore what would be the effect psychologically, right. morally. The whole question about why Christians are more sensitive, if that's the right word, to sex rather than violence, it's a good question. I don't think that it's one that we have time to fully explore here, but... And I don't even know if there is an answer, but... Well, I don't know if there's a correct answer. I have a few answers, but maybe <laughs> we can save that for um, a subsequent episode sure. where we talk about film that has maybe is R-rated because of its sexuality or can revisit that, but I don't think we want to get into to that today. Um, any, any final comments about Edge of Tomorrow? Not really. All right. Thank you, Todd, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening, especially if you're one of our new listeners at Patheos. Hop over to our web host for podcast episodes, filmgeekradio.com. If you want to drop us a line or a comment about this episode, you can follow me, Ken, on Twitter, backslash Ken Morefield, or read my reviews at the number one, morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!